Let's pray. Holy God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight now and always. In Christ we pray. Amen. First, I want to thank Lynette and John and you all at Third for inviting us here to be with you and share in this time of worship together. We are honored to be among those who love and delight in doing the work of God. So we thank you for having us here. Our New Testament reading comes from the ninth chapter of Matthew's Gospel, verses 35 through chapter 10, 4. And in your pew Bible, it's page 9 in the New Testament. Let's hear the word of God. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to cure every disease and every sickness. And these are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, also known as Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. The word of God. Be God. I'm going to give you a choice on how I will open this sermon up. You get one or two stories. You can get the story about the incredibly gifted dog, or you can get the story about the zoo that is on hard financial times. Which one would you like? <laughs> you will get the zoo story first, and if we have enough time in this sermon, you'll get the second story. And so one of the only ways I can tell this story is to kind of engage with you. One day there was a zoo that was falling on hard times. And the director of the zoo went over to one of the employees and said, you know, being that we don't have a whole lot of money, we don't have a whole lot of animals, so I'm going to need you to be the monkey this week. <laughs> Employee heard this and said, well, don't know if this is something I want to do, but in good, in good sportsmanship and, and, and supporting the zoo, I'll do this. It's not a problem. So employee puts on the monkey suit and goes out into the monkey cage. So the employee is getting all the rhythms down, acting like a monkey so that, you know, that when folks are coming, they can see that the monkey is, is, is alive and, and the monkey is interacting. And at one particular point in time, the employee decides, I will up the game a bit. 
So the employee starts doing cartwheels, and everybody says, wow, look at this incredible monkey. This is great. This is fantastic. And so then, as the employee realizes he's getting a great reaction from all the onlookers at the zoo, he decides, well, maybe I'm going to just up this a little bit more. So then he begins to do backflips, and they say, wow, look at this incredible monkey. It's so alive, with energy, and spunk. You know, this is, this is what we like to see when we come to the zoo. So then the employee says, you know, I'm going to really turn this up a notch. Climbed up on the top of the tree and began to jump up and down. And everybody said, wow, look at that incredible monkey. Jumping up and down on the, on the, on the highest tree in the cage. This is amazing. So as the monkey is jumping up and down on the tree, he falls into the lion's den. As he falls into the lion's den, onlookers couldn't understand where they were hearing, help me! <laughs> and was confused that the monkey was screaming this. So the lion comes out, slow and steady, walks right up to the monkey, and says, man, if you don't shut up, we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> People of faith, guess what? We're in this together. We are in this world together. We live these lives together. All this makes me think about the scene in Matthew's Gospel. We know that once Jesus appeared in the city, the crowds began to grow around him. And in some cases, the crowds began to swell, right? It's like if Justin Bieber came to town, right? The crowds began to swell, and then they all wanted to see what Jesus was all about, right? Some folks in the crowd, they were hungry. They were hungry in a, in a literal sense of the word, but we also know that they were hungry in a spiritual sense. In scanning this crowd membership given to us in the Gospels, we see that folks are ailing, folks are hurting. They have been afflicted from everything to blindness, hemorrhaging issues. Many had children and many had problems. As a father of two teenagers, I have problems cutting children, right? But this all serves as an indication that they have spiritual maladies, troubles, problems, and all these have an emotional and spiritual component to them. They were harassed by life. Harassed by life. When you are harassed by life, you never get a break, right? How many of us are harassed by life? Now remember, I have two teenagers, so my hand goes up automatically, <laughs> right? Something is always pulling at you when you're harassed, worrying you. Of course, when you're harassed by life, you don't ever seem to get rest. No one, you know, rest is elusive, right? How many of us are getting rest these days, right? And that was for example purposes, right? <laughs> There's a story about a mom and her two kids, they were in the backyard and the two kids were playing cowboys with their, using their fingers as, as guns and one goes bam and the one child uh, get, lays down and then gets up and shoots back and mom is hanging up laundry while the kids are doing this and at one particular point in time the child turns and goes bam to the mom and 
mom falls down and of course the neighbor sees that mom is laying there not moving and the neighbor comes out and says are you okay and mom says this is the only time in the week that I get rest. <laughs> but harassment, it's tough to get rest when we're harassed by life. When we're harassed by troubles in life. Harassment usually leads to some form of oppression and we know many in this time were oppressed physically and socially. They were looking for a leader, a healer, a redeemer, a savior. They were like sheep without a shepherd. And in case you're rusty on your old idiomatic Bible terms, sheep without a shepherd basically means that folks were leaderless. They had no guidance and when they're without leadership they were without guidance and they were without direction. So they were scared. The urban slang says they were off the chain, out of control, anxious, We live in a world that seems to be shepherdless, don't we? Think about Flint, where, where no one seems to be at the helm, watching or taking care of folks, right? Think about education in our country today, hard to concentrate on schoolwork when there's no food in your belly. Some of our young people have parents in prisons, not just daddies, but mommies too. When I was a volunteer chaplain in a prison some years ago, I had an argument with one of the inmates and held quite a, uh, quite a grudge. You know, I had an argument with George who I could not stand. Now, I love Jesus and I love the work, but I couldn't stand George. <laughs> and why? Because George would always argue with me. Didn't matter what I said. George would come to the Bible study and says, I think Jesus ate pork. No, George, it didn't happen. And we would argue and argue and argue, and one day I had had enough of arguing with George. I said, George, I'm not going to argue with you. You need to leave right away. So George got up in a huff, and George walked out left. And after that, and George was, George was in his 60s. After that, two of the other men in the Bible study said, uh, Chaplain Johnson, can we talk to you for a second? I said, what's the matter? That George just works my nerves. And one of the inmates, Demond, said, yeah, Alonzo, that might be the case, but you really need to take it easy with George. And I said, why should I take it easy with George? He didn't take it easy with me. And Demond said, yeah, because Alonzo, you are the closest thing that any of us ever had to a father in this prison. And the reality of this shows us that we are living in a world that is no different from the world where people are hurting, where people are harassed by life, where people are looking for hope, they're looking for transformation. We are looking for a healer, a redeemer, and a savior. This is a world we recognize, right, people of faith? There's a name for those people that were out there that, that day. There's a really fancy name. You know what that name is? Us. And so we have to cultivate hope. This is what Jesus does. See, I, I love this story of Jesus kind of picking these disciples, right? Because it's, it's not as if Jesus goes to the best HR unit to get these folk, right? I mean, these are, these are some rough folks. 
Right? Think of the, when you think about the disciples, these are some really rough characters, right? Some of them are a little unhewn, right? They're not too sophisticated, right? I mean, we know, of course, Judas, is, uh, Judas Iscariot, right? We know what happens with him. So we know that these folks that Jesus picks up are not seemingly the best and the brightest people of their day. But in order to cultivate hope, we need folks that are willing and open more than folks that are important. And this is the power of this scripture because we have to sow the seeds of love because the seeds of love are part of the good news. Late scholar and author of the message, Eugene Peterson, who died several days ago, says this in verse 10, Jesus gave the disciples power to kick out evil spirits. Now, I don't know what you might believe about spirits. Maybe you may believe that they are some kind of symbol for evil in the world, or maybe you believe it's like the exorcist. No matter what you believe, there is something powerful about the fact that these folks were given the power to address those things that created evil in the world. And when I think of evil spirits, I can't help thinking about the violence we've seen in our country this week. Racial violence that have taken the lives of two in a Kentucky grocery store. That's 20 minutes from my house, let me tell you this. And actually, I got an email today from a friend of mine that says, hey, Lonzo, did you know that that's a mutual friend of ours, father that was killed that day? Or 11 killed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh. This is what evil is all about. And see, I like the way the New Testament talks about evil. It, it talks about this idea of something not being pure, something being unclean, tainted from sin, mean it's the wrong mixture of things. See, my mother spoke like this. She would say to me, don't you hang out with that Dow. He's the wrong mix of things, right? Getting into trouble, not doing what he's supposed to do. The same kind of thing here. And what Jesus gives these folks is the influence and power over bad spirits. Jesus gives these folks the powers to kick evil out. And we forget about what that means to have the power to address evil in our society, in our lives, and most importantly, in our young people. Lives that are adulterated, as the word kind of implies here adulterated with oppression, lives adulterated with discrimination, lives adulterated with dehumanization, lives adulterated with hatred and violence, lives adulterated with lies, and lies adulterated with fear, right? When lives are adulterated with fear, then you know what the opposite of love is, right? No, it's fear. This is tough. This is tough words. You know what's a tough word? Because I don't always like to believe it, right? I, I don't like to believe the fact that, that, that God needs to pick us to do the kinds of things that need to be done to take care of people who have been traumatized. People in Jesus' day were traumatized. We know this trauma in our world right now, don't we? A trauma where rights seem to be rolled back. A trauma where, where homelessness is growing. Unemployment is growing. Division is growing. A sickness that is taking 
over our society, a sickness that God calls us like the disciples to come and kick at. When I, when I say the word disciples, what, what do you, let's do a word exercise. When I say disciples, what do you think of? Just yell it out. Disciples. Hmm. Followers, right? Learners. Believers. Yeah. Witnesses, right? Hmm. No one said volunteers, did you? See, disciples is about relationships, right? Being disciples is about making relationships. It's about a deep connection, a sense of purpose and duty. Like in the Isaiah test, God is making an everlasting covenant with us so that we could be learners. I watched the great Cain Hope Felder, African-American theologian, speak one day, and I decided to ask my little fancy pants question. Dr. Felder, do you believe that Jesus loved education? And Cain Hope Felder looked at me, paused for about a half a minute, and said, Lonzo, they don't call Jesus the teacher for nothing. When you think of the word disciples, you told me followers, believers, you never said well-wishers or cheerleaders or onlookers. See, the bottom line is this. Jesus calls disciples, not volunteers. Jesus needs us as believers, not contractors. This work is not hired out, it's taught. And in calling disciples, I think it's important for us to remember, to remember that Jesus was not handpicking folk willy-nilly, that Jesus was actually cultivating future hope. Jesus was doing this by equipping and loving. How many of us feel equipped and loved to face a world that we're living in today? And that's the beauty of the gift of the church, that God handpicks even you to do this incredible work. I love this passage in some ways because healing and undoing violence is connected. It means re restoring folks, restoring a person uh, back to life, person having an illness. When impoverished children in this country learn 20 million less words, it, it's about us engaging in those children and, and bringing them back to life. It's when the thousands and millions in our country of people are, are homeless. It's about us coming, restoring their lives. When 700,000 people, let me say it again, 700,000 people are released from prisons a year. It's about us restoring lives. But are you ready? Are you ready to do this, right? It reminds me of something that Irma Bombeck said. How many of us remember Irma Bombeck? I was going to make an age joke, but I'm going <laughs> to. Irma Bombeck said, never go to a doctor whose office plants are dead. <laughs> See, be open to the fact that we as a body of Christ have to be renewed, revived, and reformed. Never go to a church where it seems that folks are dead. Never go to a church where it seems that there is no strategy, that the ideas of serving the Lord is dead. Never go to a church where it seems the mission is dead. Great words from Irma Bombeck. In commemoration of Reformation Sunday, it's important for us to remember several things. That distribution of the good news and reformation of the heart goes hand in hand. 
Brad and I were talking last night. We were reminded that with Luther and the technology of the day, guess what? The good news went viral. Luther got the good news out and everybody got a hold of it. It was almost like Facebook back in the day, right? Reform means bringing us back to the source or the place to what is real. What Jesus does is Jesus reforms this community. He shows this community that the place that is real is the place of hope and the place of healing and the place of transformation and the place where we have relationships with God. This is beautiful about what Jesus does and this is what reform means to us. It means that we get to know the warmth of Jesus Christ in a cold world. When I was a kid growing up in Newark, New Jersey, we didn't have electricity for several months. We had heat, but not electricity. Actually, we had gas, but not heat. And my mom would have to go through the house and put blankets up in all the doorways of the apartment, actually. And my mom would do this because she would open the oven so that we can be warm in the kitchen. And as we would come together, as it got darker and darker, my mom would call us into the kitchen and she would sit us down and I would say, Mom, why is this happening to us? And she said, Alonzo, come to the place where it is warm. Because in this kitchen, this is where we will all sit together. See, people of faith, this church is the place where God has called you to warmth. In a cold world that's hurting, a cold world of violence and separation and fear and deportation and worry, a world that can be very cold, God is calling you into this kitchen to get warm. I guess I should start preaching now. <laughs> but see, here's the beauty about the Reformed tradition, right? We, we have to get back to bringing the good news of the shepherd to a shepherdless world. We just talked about a world without a shepherd. But we need to bring this good news back to the, to the world. The place of unity is right here. Charlottesville, Ferguson, extrajudicial killings. We're called to proclaim the good news of the kingdom by taking a stand against stand your ground culture. We're called present in a world that seems void of shepherds. We must remember that we had a confession for that. Remember we have an app for that? We have a confession for that. Anytime we're a group of tiki, torch-carrying white supremacists walk through your city, you have a confession for that. You have the Barman confession for that. C67. Belhar, it reminds us that racism is evil and it's idolatry and sin and we are called to be God's people to stand in the warmth of God's love in welcoming all people into this place. Amen. We have forgotten, we have forgotten that we are people of Luther, Calvin, Huss, those who saw that everybody had a right to education. This is what we as Reformed people are all about. When I think about this Jesus story, it's picking folk. Jesus picked us so we can be Reformed to do God's real work in the world. We are, we, we, the Reformers, we are the architects of public school. Did you know that? Meanwhile, the school of prison pipeline thrives and sucks out almost four times the amount of black and brown and poor children. We have forgotten that we are the ones that believe in the person that said, let the children come unto me. 
We need to once again be the church and recognize that all children are our children. That children too are harassed by life. I like what child advocate, theologian, and good friend, Reverend Dr. Eileen Linder says, well, if you're not going to do anything for kids, then stop baptizing them. We need to get back to making sure that we are people of education. We need to get back to making sure that this is the place where God has called us. You know, what good can come out of Rochester, right? Well, I'll tell you what. Here's two incredible things out of Rochester. Walter Rauch and Bush, right? The invention of the social gospel. That comes, that comes right from the end of the city. And guess what else was born in this city? The program in which I work for, the self-development of people, was born right here in 1970 in Rochester, New York. So God has a plan for all of us. No matter who you are or no matter who you think you are, God is handpicking each one of us to bring us closer to the warmth because there's a world that's cold and needs our love and touch. And I will close with this message. Years ago when I was working in the prison, a friend of mine, Bill Whitby, we were both volunteer chaplains and when we, got in, when we arrived at the, at the office of the chapel, there was a note on the door that said, Bill or Alonzo, one of you need to go up to solitary confinement and let this inmate know that his brother has been shot. So I looked at Bill and I said, Bill, God bless you. And Godspeed to you, brother. And Bill said, I'm not going. I've been up in solitary confinement for the last three weeks. It's your turn to go. So we odds even trying to deal with this whole thing, right? You know what solitary confinement is in the prison, right? It's the prison within the prison. See, I'm going to tell you one reason why I don't like to go to solitary confinement, because when you walk through there, all the hands come out of the gates and they go, Reverend, just talk to me. Reverend, just acknowledge my presence. Reverend, would you please just talk to me? Nobody has talked to me in days. Reverend, could you just acknowledge my presence? They grab you and they want you to talk to them. And that's painful. So I go up, I lose the whole bet, and I go up to solitary confinement. And when I get up, I say, look, I'm looking for a certain inmate. Uh, I need to let him know his brother's been shot. Well, the two guards that were in the booth kind of smirked at each other. I didn't know what it meant, but I figured whatever. So they said, all right, Chaplain Johnson, sit right over here, right on this bench, and we'll let this inmate out for you. So I hear this loud buzz, which meant the, the cell door open. So here comes the inmate. He walks out, he's six foot seven, he's white, and he's covered with Nazi tattoos. And he looks through me, and he walks over and he just sits down, and he's handcuffed. And he looks through me, and the first thought I had was, Lord, I am coming home today. <laughs> so we begin to talk, and he looks at me and says, you got something to say to me? You need to talk to me about something? I said, yes, with a large gulp. Your brother has been shot. So he grabs my hands. I said, Lord, here it comes. I'm coming home. And he begins to weep. And I look at him and he says, Chaplain, don't just sit there. I need you to pray for me. So we begin to pray in Jesus' name. And then we stand up, and then he, he says, Chaplain, I need you to hug me right now. So I, I kind of hug him with the most awkward hug on the planet. He goes to his cell, and I walk down to the walk. And as I'm coming down, Bill said, look, I don't know 
what happened up there, Alonzo, but this is the palest I've ever seen a dark-skinned black man in my life. <laughs> he said, what happened up there? So I told him. I said, Bill, this is what happened, and I, you know, I can't believe it. And Bill said, Alonzo, you really showed him Jesus Christ. And I said, no, Bill, that was Jesus Christ. When are we going to see the face of Jesus and those who are hurting so much that they're willing to cause violence? When do we see the face of Jesus Christ and those who struggle with hate and struggle with hate and need us as the disciples to do the kicking out of the evil spirits in their lives? When are we going to understand that God has handpicked each and every one of us without respect to who we are, what we look like, what our education levels are? to do God's will. When are gonna, we going to be reminded that we are the ones to be cultivating hope with the seeds of love always? When are we going to be the ones to be reminded that God calls us to the warmth of hope in a cold and divided world?